I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I think we're prepared to line up for a very expensive pair of socks from a boutique with a label on them and pay $400 for those socks. That, to me, is expensive. But a big group of people hand-making something daily from amazing ingredients, if it's a good experience, it's priceless. Wait, who do you know is spending $400 on socks? (laughs) A lot, (laughs) a lot of people. (laughs) My guest, Ben Shuri, is a chef who owns and operates one of the top restaurants in the world, Attica, in Melbourne, Australia. Attica is not a place to find foie gras, Instead, it's all about using local ingredients from Ben's rural childhood in New Zealand and foods indigenous to Australia. I wanted to talk to Ben because there's been such a reckoning over the business model of quote-unquote fine dining restaurants during the pandemic. And I was a little surprised to hear that despite having a top-tier restaurant where the meals cost $250 per person, Ben is not making as much money as you might think. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much they make and how their finances work so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Hello, Ben. Thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning, Maya. Thanks for having me. Can you paint a picture of the sights, the sounds, the smells, and tastes? Like, what's the vibe of Attica? Sure. So Attica is in a small community called Ripon Lee. It's a suburb, 20 minutes from the city. And it is pretty unassuming, This the suburb. There's not really, a, there's not a big sign or anything. But the door is quite unusual. It's wooden and it has a bronze sculptured handle of, of a piece of bark. It's really cool. It's made by local artists. So you, touch points are really important. Um, they signify that you have arrived somewhere different. So you come in and the dining room 
is, I wouldn't say it's modest, um, but it's not a bling place. It's beautiful inside. It's immaculate. There's art all over the walls. You sit, it's very comfortable. The chairs are especially made for the restaurant. They're designed from 1960s by Grant Featherston. They've been engineered to be able to sit on and very comfortably for three hours, the length of the menu. Um, There's music. I'm always working on the Attica playlist. There's very little adornment on the table. There's two handmade water glasses, which are very brightly coloured and very unusual. And there's a basket made by the Jampi Desert Weavers, an Aboriginal collective of artists. And inside it are these little balls that are Kwandong seeds, which is the seed of a native fruit, Kwandong, and it's delicious fruit, you're going to have that. Immediately we are sort of doing everything that we can to try to disarm the customer who's sometimes a bit nervous about coming to a really famous restaurant. And we, of course, don't see ourselves like that. I don't like that formality of traditional fine dining restaurants at all. I, I just don't see that how that gets to the core of things, which is making people happy and you know, pe- getting people relaxed. And we want people to have an, an exceptional time. We want to make people happy. We can't make them happy. We can give them some cues. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a very strong desire of almost every hospitality worker that I've ever, ever um, worked with, especially waiters. It's about like kind of trying to be super kind to people. It's about making them feel comfortable whilst challenging them, you know, and their perceptions about what Australian food is. Um, There's an educational component if you're into that. If you're not, it's no biggie. Yeah, it's just like fun, uh, energetic and passionate. How did you come to own Attica? So I came to own Attica uh, in 2015, after working for the former owner for a decade. So I was an employee here, uh, the head chef, and then effectively he wanted to sell it and I wanted to buy it and I purchased it um, then. It took absolutely everything I had, uh, every cent that I had, and it took um, an additional $60,000 that I borrowed from my parents who didn't have much money, so it was a big risk for them to loan me that money. Mm-hmm. I um, effectively bet my house on my ability to turn this place around. Uh, I had a, a modest home and a, and a home loan, but I had some equity in that house. So it was an amazing moment uh, because hospitality workers, you know, mostly our lives are in the service of others and those people that own restaurants are often business people rather than hospitality workers. Now, there, right. there are lots of examples of small businesses being owned by owner-operators, but um, at the more ambitious end of things, it's not really the case. So it was a really amazing moment. It was kind of unexpected, and I was completely terrified of it. Like, I had very little business acumen. I had fairly average management skills. You know, you're not taught any of these things as a chef. So I set to work trying to change what well, I did change kind of a hand and we are changing everything really. But in my early part of my career, I wasn't working in any great places. Upon reflection, in my later years, I've been able to go, while it was such a valuable five or six years because you didn't have anybody showing you how to do something, so you just made it up as you went. And it was probably technically wrong, but the learning from having that freedom was immense, which 
ultimately it led to me being able to develop my own style that didn't really seem like anybody else's. How much money do you make? Well, that's a, that's a you want a quick answer. <laughs> that, that's, that's, a, that's an anxiety-inducing question. And there's not a quick answer for that question. I mean, there is simply, my, my income varies and I'm going to say that it's between 100 and 200,000 and, and I can explain why there's such variations. Just a note, Ben is speaking in terms of Australian dollars. So in US dollars, that would be around 67,000 to $134,000. And about 50% of his income is from his restaurant. So the rest is from his social media promotions, which you'll hear more about later. Yeah, tell me about what what the caveats are. So uh, the caveats are for me personally that I've come from a really humble upbringing in New Zealand. And because of the culture of tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand and in Australia, Talking about money and how much you make is something that you never do. On top of that, in the 1980s, I was a skateboarder and somebody who listened to punk music and there's this there's this kind of, I guess, this kind of sellout. Making money is kind of, a, you're, you know, if you make money, you're a sellout and there's this sort of mentality around that that I've carried forward as, as an adult and that's mm. actually been something that's really hard to overcome because you're kind of talking about not being able to accept your own success mm-hmm. and potentially the financial gains that come with that. So money has been a problem for me in that way. And coming from your identity as a skateboarder and then now, you know, fast forwarding to now, is there an amount that you feel would be acceptable for you to make and still maintaining your identity? Yeah, so first of all, it's it's not just about how much you make, but it's how you make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that I generate an income through the restaurant is totally acceptable to this kind of DIY skater punk mentality that I've grown up with and that I still still on some level subscribe to mm-hmm. uh, because that's a, a sort of a purist's vision of creating art and articulating yourself. We're independent um, small business. I'm the only old, only owner and shareholder. So there's sort of like the pure side of making money in my life. And on the other side is a is a different company that I run, which is more about you know, leveraging my knownness, if you like, or my reputation with endorsements and sponsorship um, and getting behind products. So that's the part that. I've had to reckon with the last few years um, that that that's a positive thing for me. I couldn't really accept that at the start. I was terrified of that side of things because I was solely a creative person that worked on making things, yeah, not influencing things, I suppose. Well, influencing things in an indirect way. Mm. What is your net worth? Well, my net worth is negative. I have a large mortgage on my home. I'm fortunate to be debt-free in my business, but it would be several million dollars in the negative if I take all of my assets and all of my debts and put them together. 
right. I would be in in negative by I'm guessing you know two two and a half million dollars something like that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever spoken publicly before about your finances? Never. And how do you feel about financial and salary transparency in general? Well, I think that companies have to be transparent, but public companies, uh, private companies don't have to be at all. Um, you know, the question I was having even with my partner, Kylie, was like, who benefits from knowing my personal financial information? Mm-hmm. I guess it's other people listening, but is it me? And that was the that was the kind of conundrum that we were sitting with this morning when we were discussing this. And I'm not trying to be mm. coy on it. I'm just going, so what's the benefit to me for telling the public my personal finances? And I I, know, I kind of am a person that kind of likes to pay it forward, uh, spread, you know, goodwill in the community and be held accountable for my actions. But I, I was really like, I'm not sure... I'm not sure who benefits from this. I don't. I don't think I do. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I do. In so much that somebody hears this and goes, "Well, that's not what I thought it was." <laughs> you know, I thought somebody who'd achieved that level of a success would be in a in a different financial position. I'm not complaining. I feel like I got a lot more than a lot of other people. You know, um, but but perhaps uh, there's a feeling within me that it's not relative to the level of success or fame that somebody achieves when they reach a really, really high level in their vocation. Yeah. Well, and again, I, th- I really thank you for being open because I know that it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And I do think that it's helpful for people. I think it's helpful for anyone who aspires to be a chef or or just looks at you generally and is so in awe of what you do. I think it's just a you know real-world piece of information. I really thank you for, for being so open. It's a pleasure, but uh, it's probably, uh, it's maybe more of a pleasure for you. (laughs) No, um, I think, yeah, I think it's a good thing to break down for sure. It's definitely a taboo subject. Um, And it's not that I don't care about money. I think we all need to care about money and the freedom that a certain amount of money gives a person, but it's not my motivation in life. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you were around my company um, and you saw the way that it operated, that would be very apparent. It's not irresponsible. It's just that the way that I choose to spend the money is a, is a little bit different than a lot of other companies. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. 
Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Maybe this is kind of what you were getting at earlier. What are all the different streams of income that you have? So really the two income streams that I have um, are are two companies kind of separate. So the the Attica Restaurant Company and then a company that I call the Benshuri Initiative, which is the promotions company. The, The restaurant company is got a very high staff-to-customer ratio. It's one staff member to 1.25 customers, so nearly equal. And 
anybody who understands anything about business would realise that that is very, very high and that comes at a very high cost when you're paying people properly for the hours that they work and a fair salary. So Attica is my passion. You know, it's something that I've been doing for a long time, 17 years. Uh, I've been working at Attica for the last seven years. I've been I've owned it outright. We have 40 of the most exceptional humans that I get to come and join each day and, and work with. And that is something that's sacred to me and something that I actively work to protect in the financial sense. But because of the enormous costs in, involved in running a restaurant like Attica, um, not just on the wage labour side of things, but also on the food cost side, it makes a modest profit. Now, it makes a profit, and that's that's crucial. With those profits, though, I draw a small amount from the restaurant. What has sort of evolved in my life is this ability to make an out an income alongside the restaurant, I suppose, using, you know, this thing that I protect and love um, as the vehicle to uh, help other companies promote their products or collaborate on new products with companies. Um, so that could be developing a range of, of a product for somebody that could be helping advertise their product, um, that could be holding events for that company, um, that could be doing an Instagram post, another form of advertising. So that's really how I live in a lot of ways. And why I put such a variation on that number that I earn is because that the venture initiative income, it's up and down, so it's, it's not as reliable, you know, as, say, like having 50 people at your restaurant every night paying. Talk about the balance you find between doing things that you maybe thought were sellout-y and, you know, and not. Well, initially there was no balance. There was just like my cold kind of hard opinion, which was like you can't do that because that's selling out. And um, I remember during the pandemic, you know, restaurants globally were smashed and for the first time I considered this this other way of earning an income when a company approached me, wanted me to do an Instagram post. And they were prepared to pay me $10,000 for one post. And for me, that was wild. And people had approached me before, but I'd always kind of pushed back on it. And mm-hmm. I, it should be qualified that values still need to be aligned. You can't just, I can't just promote anybody's product. So, you know, I felt like the values were aligned enough where I didn't feel compromised, but I still felt exceptionally nervous about it. Like I was, I've never, ever put an ad on my Instagram before this and I'm kind of terrified of the reaction. I understand that those demons are mostly mine, but nonetheless, I'm like, oh man, you know, you're such a sellout. And at the same time, the company's in dire straits and like we could really use that income. So I decided that I was going to do it and the overwhelming reaction was like, especially from a younger generation, was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. You're collaborating with that brand because <laughs> it's that generation that I was, you know, like the skater kid or, you know, the kid listening to independent music that I was thinking was probably going to, like, chastise me for. You know, so that was right. kind of a really nice uh, reaction from a different generation. So what I'm saying is I think a lot of that questioning is internal. It's also from a deep historical struggle as well and not having money and then the idea of somebody paying you a large sum of money for a post, you know, there's a yeah. there's sort of a, 
a ridiculous weird. element to that. Yeah, it's really weird. Like when you didn't even have like $15 to put petrol in your car, you know, not so long ago. That's a, that's a strange, that's a strange reality. Right. It reminds me of that there's like some saying that like somebody like saw Picasso do a line drawing that took five minutes and they're like, oh, well, that didn't take you very long. Like, I only want to offer you $10 for it. How long did that really take you? Five minutes? And the response is like, no, it took me my whole life. Absolutely. Like, you've built up this reputation. That's why you're worth what you're worth on Instagram. Absolutely, and that's you know that's going out to thousands, tens of thousands of people, um, and I you know really I apply that a lot to this journey of work, you know, which now look I'm 45, I've been cooking professionally, uh, first step foot in the kitchen when I was 10, and had my first job when I was 14, qualified by the age of 18. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of years, a lot of kilometres on my body, on my on my mind, a lot of experience, like you said, you know, and it. it just doesn't come instantly, that sort of opportunity. What socioeconomic class do you think you were growing up and what do you consider yourself now? Well, it was very much a working class upbringing. Uh, my parents had bought a really run down farm in the back country of New Zealand in in the late 70s and that's where I grew up Awakino the place was was called and I think they when they purchased it there was a, an 18% interest rate on that mortgage and they struggled you know it was it was the sort of I, in my mind the picture is the farm that nobody wanted very very rough all the fences were busted up it was overrun with noxious weeds and plants you know that were really smashing the productivity of the farm. So they spent a decade working themselves into the ground to resuscitate that farm, but they never really paid themselves. My mother, she stopped school teaching for a little while. She was a school teacher, is a school teacher, and she stopped that for a little while while she raised the three, her three kids with, along with my father. And probably wasn't until... I was in my teens when she started to take positions of seniority as a principal that their income um, rose modestly, but it rose. So it was a struggle, um, but I want to say that we were really, really rich in other ways. Uh, because the farm was sheep and cattle, it produced a lot of food. So we always had we always had food on the table. My parents are avid gardeners, so there was always the meals are really important. And we had this kind of concept of making your own fun. So there was sort of no excuses not to have a good time because there was always a piece of wood that you could carve or there was a tunnel that you could dig. Money wasn't something we talked about, though, really. I was just aware of it because I guess I saw there may be other wealthier people in the district. So my mom actually lives in Melbourne, um, and I told her that I was going to interview you, and I was like, have you ever been to Attica? And she said, no. Um, and she got all excited and, and looked up, you know, the website. And then she was like, oh, you know, that's just really – I mean, I, I do think she probably used the word expensive. I'm sorry. But, she, you know, she, <laughs> she cited the prices and just said, you know, I don't think that I can eat there. And I'm wondering if you can talk about 
What do you think is the wealth level of most of your customers? And do you ever feel um, do you ever feel there's a tension given like your upbringing and the the people around you and your yeah. upbringing and like whether they could afford to eat there? That's a great question. Um, you know, yeah, then that's a really interesting thing. So kind of where like I started and where I ended up was not intentional. You know, even at the beginning of Atticare, you know, snacks were like $10, entrees were like, you know, well, entrees, which I think in America you call main courses, were, you know, all under $24, I think. Um, and for Australia, which has much higher costs than America, higher food costs, higher wage costs, mm-hmm. um, that... Um, you know, that was pretty low price. That was two people in the kitchen, two people on the floor, so the economics are really different. As time passed, I, I didn't have much of a sense of my ambition or drive. I probably didn't think that I was either. I think when you're 27, maybe you don't really know. My, my sole drive always has been for it to be better and better and better, um, and that's still kind of the case today. I, you know, I think I'm... I'm much more thoughtful of my ambition now and and you need to be mindful of it, you know, what people were prepared to do for you, you know, that people would, you know, if you're in a position of power or influence, then people will do kind of anything for you. And, but you need to question that just because they will. It doesn't make it right. The thing about Attica, which is interesting, and it's sort of different to a lot of other ambitious restaurants that I've been to, especially in big cities like New York or London or Paris, is that... Um, because it kind of has a community spirit like a, or a mentality it, that the restaurant doesn't see itself above the community ever. It's a part of the community. That people want to come here, you know, quite a bit and people save. Like people of, you know, of, of not great means get to come here because they save and it, they, it's a really big deal. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that. If, if the, this is, you know, for some people, this is their Beyonce concert or like this is worth it to save. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they, they've saved for a year, you know, maybe to come. And maybe like if they have a family, they've got a babysitter. And it's a really big, it's a big moment. And those people especially, like, that's who we live for. Um, because I really, really engaged Maya. And they're the absolute best customers. They've researched really heavily. They sort of know on some level what it's about, what's going to happen. Um, and they're so excited because they're so engaged. So you don't have to have a lot of means to appreciate something that costs a lot of money. You know, like it's like that whole, you know, anybody can appreciate art, anybody can appreciate food. So many of those people that you just heard about the restaurant that hadn't dined here were really big supporters of us during the pandemic when we were selling takeaway lasagna and cheesecakes and 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 more humble offerings. Um, you know, I, I did. I told myself that I would never forget about the generosity of those people because, you know, buying a seven dollars slice of cheesecake on your last paycheck because you want to support a company that you believe in, like that is so immensely generous to me. Like when you have very little money and yet still have it within your heart to come and tell another human that. I stood in a little bake shop during the, during one of the lockdowns as a woman told me that. And I thought, my God, this is the sort of experience you only have once or twice in your life and you must remember this. I don't apologise for the cost of the menu because that's what it costs to make. But, uh, but I am conscious that, um, that it does exclude people for sure.
Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful 
about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. A multi-course tasting menu at your restaurant is 360 Australian dollars. So that's about 250 US dollars. Yep. Can you give us an idea of what, how do you arrive at that price? It is the highest price menu in Australia. And most of our peers set their price slightly below that. And it would be really great if somebody would take the lead and set it at a higher price uh, than us. It would really take the pressure off. Um, but within that $360, it's barely enough to run a really like financially viable business, which I would really like financially benefit from. So you've got almost 50% going on wages. Routinely, you're in for 35% on food um, because we don't compromise on any of the products we use and we don't negotiate suppliers down. So then, you know, there's obviously all of the other overheads that other businesses have as well. There's insurance, there's the rent, there's the office costs, you know, the list goes on. If you're really running a tight ship, you know, you could probably hope to make about 3 to 5% profit. And that's kind of the national average. So that's obviously a fair bit lower than other industries' profit margins. And a lot of people listening to this would wonder why, you know, I would even do it um, or why I would take the risk because obviously if you're running at, you know, a 3 to 5% profit, the risk of being in the negative is always, always right there. So, you know, you have a month, you blow out costs or you, you know, you overstaff or whatever it might be, there's a negative. So over time I've got a, I've got a feeling there's a kind of a rhythm to our restaurant and that's about where it sits. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people would be shocked to learn that a restaurant where you're paying 250 US dollars on, on your meal, like they'd be shocked to learn that like you're not making a killing off of that. Like your profit no. is not insane. Like do you, are there dishes that you lose money on? Yeah, I mean, for sure, like, we spend too much money on food. But it, it really comes back to what you want from life and how you value things. And money has never been my primary motivation in life. There's so many things that I've experienced at the restaurant and in my career, even when, you know, in prior jobs I was underpaid and overworked, that were more than money. Um, and I, I have a very, like, bright way of looking at things. Like, I don't tend to dwell on the negative side of it. But for me, there's a spirit and there is a, a sort of a euphoric relationship and experience that lives here. And so I return to focus on the shared kind of experience and the feeling of creating things with other humans and those relationships like right throughout community, not just with my team but with other people as well. And talk to me about some of the mechanics and economics of running a restaurant. Like, what are some mm. of the costs that people <laughs> might not think about? Okay. So here we have only paid employees. They're all paid properly. It goes without saying. That should be the default expectation of restaurants. The cost of 
of having highly skilled people and them working a reasonable amount of hours. And I put reasonable between 38 and 45 hours. It's about the maximum that somebody would work here, depending on their seniority. Is The cost is very high. So I can give you an exact figure from December um, from the profit and loss where the wages were at 49% of overall revenue. So that is, for anybody in business knows that that is extraordinarily high, but that is just the true cost of doing business. Now, we, we charge $360 per person for food only here. That's a high price, but I won't accept anybody saying to me that that is expensive because it implies that it's not good value. And, and that's why I'm telling you that figure because almost half of that menu price is going to um, the team and deservedly so they deserve every cent and more. So don't for a second think that this is me complaining about that. It's not like it's just the reality. Do you feel like the word expensive is synonymous with like overpriced? It's dirty word for me, you know, like uh, expensive is sort of the one of the only words that people seem to know how to describe fine dining. I don't technically classify our restaurant as fine dining. I think fine dining is more of a French thing. What we're doing here is, I would say, is ambitious dining and personal dining, but it's pretty laid back and the food is playful and so is the service. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not excellent on all the levels it is. But, yeah, when somebody describes something as expensive, I think they're implying that it doesn't represent good value. And when they apply that to a restaurant experience that they've enjoyed, keyword being enjoyed, I, I think they're doing the restaurant a disservice because restaurants are the last really last kind of small boutique factories where artisans are working, craftspeople are working to make things daily from materials that are degrading daily. And that costs a lot of money. Like just to have that many people who are experts hand-making things for a very small amount of consumers each night, it, it will be a high price because people are going to be paid properly Supplies got to be paid properly. And if you're of an environmental mind like I am, then food costs more as well. To use more ethical ingredients costs more. I think we're prepared to line up for a very expensive pair of socks from a boutique with a label on them and pay $400 for those socks when they might potentially cost $8 to make. That to me is expensive, you know, but a big group of people hand-making something daily from amazing ingredients, like an artisanal boutique factory, that that's kind of, if it's a good experience, it's priceless. Wait, who do you know is spending $400 on socks? Uh, a <laughs> lot, a lot of people. <laughs> like, we have this phenomenon, you know, of lining for boutiques here as well. I don't know if you have that in, in yeah. LA. Yeah. I, I've lined up to experience what that feels like, not not to purchase something, uh, and it doesn't feel good. Just I mean, to stand it, in the line, yeah. And then, you know, to be greeted, you know, kind of grimly by a security guard and then to be followed around the boutique by a, a bird of prey salesperson. Yeah. Uh, that's not my idea of good value or luxury. Uh, that's the opposite. But everybody's different, right? I'm 
I'm curious if you can talk more about some of the ingredients you use. I think it's on your website. You use bunya nuts and morong. These are indigenous ingredients. Can you talk yeah. about those? And also, like, how do you involve people who are indigenous to New Zealand and or Australia into the conversation about how you create your menus and, and how you present your food? So it starts in New Zealand. You know, I grew up in a country that for all of its flaws acknowledges and celebrates Maori culture in a way that a lot of other colonised countries don't. That's not to say that we don't have racism, that Maori people haven't been held down by the invasion of New Zealand, um, but we did have some factors there like the signing of the treaty which set us in a direction, the right direction, I would say, not everybody would agree, but um, in a direction that enabled the, the general population, whether you be Maori or Pākehā, Pākehā means, in Tereo means white person, to feel a sense of pride in the fact that we have, you know, this First Nations culture in our country. So growing up, that was just a normal thing. We didn't have to talk about it really like that. And so that was something sort of sacred and special to me, and I carried that lived experience over to Australia when I moved here when I was 25. The experience of coming to Australia was jarring in comparison in regards to our First Nations people. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been through more than just about any other group groups of people that I can think of. And so when I came here, I was really interested in that culture too, but I was also kind of scared of uh, to be like the next white dude that would, that would um, mess things up. In terms of how that looks in the restaurant, I was really interested in getting directly to kind of what it meant to me to be an Australian restaurant. Um, for me, that meant using foods that were endemic to this country, and that were a bit overlooked by the broader society, never overlooked by First Nations people, of course. I just realised that there was these deep stories going back tens of thousands of years and this intergenerational knowledge, which was just undeniable. Um, and so with permission, you know, when I've been shared that knowledge, you know, we'll pass that on through our, our cooking. Um, so I like to think of it as diffusion where, you know, I'm respecting somebody's culture, acknowledging it, acknowledging it publicly, both through um, my privilege but also through our wait staff to our guests is an important role that food can play in Australian society to bring us closer together to help the different factions that exist in our community to understand each other. In my opinion, like the greatest thing we have to celebrate in Australia is this ancient living culture. It's such a vibrant and unique part of our society and, um, you know, I really want to, you know, on my side of the fence, I want to help non-Indigenous people to see that um, and assist where I can. But I started by admitting my ignorance and not pretending to be an expert. I'm not an expert. First Nations people are experts on their own food and culture. There have been a lot of restaurants that have had to close their doors during the pandemic. And there's recently been some restaurants that sort of very elevated cuisine who are saying that it's not sustainable. It's not financially sustainable for them to continue. What is your take on all of that? Well, my take is, is that we are all responsible for our own actions. In, in my case, when I took ownership of the restaurant, I, I knew that it needed to change. So seven years ago, I started to implement those changes. I, I do think it's a cop-out to say to blame the system 
um, because, like I said, we are responsible for that system. We are not victims of the system. We are also culpable within the system and sometimes of perpetuating the system. So I had examined that with myself. And so I would say to people that are unhappy with the problems that exist in hospitality to just start with changing one thing. Like it doesn't have to be a big thing. Just change one thing about the culture that you don't like. Like I'm speaking to restaurant owners, chefs, people of power. Now it's hard for employees to affect change unless they have somebody at the top who is open to it. Um, and I would come back to another kind of uh, thing that, you know, I once heard that I think is really powerful is that the definition of business is problems. So let's stop seeing the issues as negatives and see them as things that we need to change and that we have the ability and the power to change. And for me, like I'm always thinking about who's coming next. You know, I employ a bunch of people that are the future of hospitality I need to be making decisions today that affect a more positive future for them beyond our business. That's that's absolutely key because you you kind of want to leave the community in a better position than the one that you entered into. And the one that I entered into was intense, you know, with harassment and bullying and underpayment and drugs, you know, all of these things that you read about. Now, that's not the only thing that was in my community as a young cook, but that was the worst of it. And then a staff member comes to you and goes, hey, you know, this thing I'm experiencing, like, can I talk to you about it? And you realise, oh, geez, that's actually kind of a mistake of the company. So let's let's make like an informed decision here. I mean, I, it should be said with all the changes that I've made and that I make, and there's many, many, many changes that Attic has undergone over the last decade, is that I consult the team. It comes back to fundamental that profits matter, you know, it makes a restaurant sustainable, but never profit should never come before staff or the community. So that that's kind of a core tenant of how I do business. I worked for an exceptional restaurant when I was 21. It was really ethical and it was life-changing for me. Which restaurant was that? It was called the Roxburgh Bistro and it was in Wellington, New Zealand. It was the top restaurant in the country at the time. The chef's name was Mark Limica and he's my mentor. He is a significant friend and we talk all the time to this day. Yeah, that was like the best thing that probably ever happened to me. I mean, at the time, it was uh, it was that he was so elite as a cook and professional, and I I was in awe of like the, the cooking level, and I learned so much on that. And then later, I realized what the most special thing was not as a cooking ability, but the culture that he built and the care that him and Helen, his wife, had for us. We and and that's flowed on to this day. I mean, it's immense, you know. So what mm. absolute gift. I'm so, so grateful. A beautiful thing happened yesterday. We have this problem. It's a solution to a problem that we've been doing for a decade called staff speeches. It's it's around empathy. So for a decade, we do the staff speeches. It's about bringing the dining room and the kitchen who have a historical kind of distrust and dislike of each other in hospitality more broadly. Mm. I wanted to bring those two groups together and make them closer or give them the opportunity. I couldn't make them closer, but give them the opportunity to bring them closer. And so there's a roster and all of the staff are on the roster and every Wednesday a different staff member gets to present a speech to the whole group for 30 minutes. The typical story is about sharing something about yourself, something personal potentially, other people hearing it, feeling empathy for you, and they're not overreacting 
when the shit is hitting the proverbial fan during that the diff- more difficult right. part of service, right? It's about right, like humanizing everyone. Yeah, it's about different people that don't like that coexist in the building, but don't come into contact with each other very much. Sure, it's the hardest thing to feel empathy for somebody you don't know. You know, so mm-hmm. to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes is a powerful thing. That's one of the mechanisms that we use to bring the two groups together and 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 to create a vibrant culture. That is really cool. <laughs> it is so rare when you have a boss that's a great boss and, a, and an environment that makes you want to do your best. I mean, it's so special. It's not like you will have more respect for someone just because they have great technical skills. Oh, no. you know? I mean, you might have respect for them, but you have so much more respect when they're like also a good boss. Absolutely. The more successful people are who work for me, the the better they are, but it reflects well on me as well. You know, like, I'm not diminished by it for a second. If somebody comes up with something great, I'll acknowledge them. Like, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to do that. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really fun to talk to you. It's been such a privilege, Maya. Love talking to you too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Other People's Pockets. And hey, it really helps our show if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. Special thanks to $400 Socks. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And one more thing we want to hear from you, OPP listeners. Is your job being replaced by AI? What is the skill that artificial intelligence is taking over in your industry? And how are you feeling about that? And also, how much money do you make? Leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255. Or record a voice memo on your phone and send it to otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.